0: Welcome to the Building Function Podcast. Today, we're speaking to none other than Dr. Johnny Lowe. Dr. Lowe is a trained medical doctor. He's an ENT, or a registrar-level ENT, who also holds a PhD in medical devices. And what's really cool is while studying his PhD, Dr. Lowe founded and sold a digital SaaS company before going on to work with several digital health companies over his career. Uh, the most recent company that he joined as their chief strategy officer is CancerAid. Whilst he spearheaded as the lead author, a study which was completed alongside his co-workers, one of the biggest life insurers in Australia, AIA. And we chat to Johnny today about his transition from the medical profession over to the tech world. And we also unpack some of the key findings from that retrospective study with AIA, examining the results of their digital health coaching intervention for cancer survivors with job loss. So without further ado, welcome Dr. Johnny Lowe to Building Function. Welcome to the Building Function podcast, where we talk about all things exercise physiology in the return to work and return to life space. So, if you're listening while you're walking, working out or working, we hope you enjoy Building Function. Let's kick off with it. Now, when I was going through your your LinkedIn profile, now tell me if this is something you've updated just recently because I swear previously you had your title in the LinkedIn profile as you had a little asterisk next to surfer and you had it in brackets, you had learning in there. And I feel like I just checked it out again recently and you've now upgraded your status to no longer learning, but uh, sometimes feeling like a learner. So, have you, uh, as your surfing ability progressed recently, you felt you needed to update everybody?
1: Oh, no, it hasn't, Brad. Certainly not. I'm still getting passed by the Groms um, out in the surf lineups of the, the younger surfers. Um, there's nothing more humbling than seeing an, 18, an eight-year-old motor past you um, on, and surfing better than you. But, yes, yeah, still certainly still learning, and um, that was just a LinkedIn update. Time to grow up on, on LinkedIn.
0: <laughs> well done. Well, what's your uh, – I mean, as I would put myself in the exact same category that uh, someone that attempts to surf but is frequently – uh, either embarrassed by others or, or just embarrassed myself with my own ability. But uh, I've got two questions about your surfing, and I think they're separate, but they could be the same answer for both. Where is the best wave you've ever caught, and where is your favourite place to surf? They may be the same, but they may be different.
1: Slightly different. Uh, certainly my, the favourite place I've ever surfed has been the Mentawis. Uh, it was um, crystal clear water, incredible waves, and uh, yeah no, nothing beats sitting under a coconut tree after a surf and then my favorite place though would be at home I'm just south towards Wollongong and yeah we have sport for beaches down that way so favorite place to surf ever Mentawis but but at home for the rest of the time.
0: Awesome love it well I'm on the I'm on the northern beaches so there might be some north versus south rivalry because I might argue about the quality of the northern beaches trumping the, the southern, but you might have a different opinion.
1: Uh, yeah, I'll, I haven't surfed both areas, but um, yeah, I'll, I'll have to take your word for it <laughs> for now.
0: Well, look, <laughs> we'll, leave, uh, we'll leave surfing there. But um, well, actually, because I was going to get into your, um, uh, your medical career and ask you what drew you, drew you into to medicine. And I know in your early career, you were ENT registrar uh, and that's I think where you kicked off the majority of your medical career am I right with that
1: yeah that's correct Brad
0: what drew I was going to I mean I obviously want to know what drew you into medicine but was there anything uh, that particularly drew you into surfing so I think you were a later in life uh, person to pick that up is that right
1: yeah I, I was and I've, I've heard comparisons between surfing and golf both in the frustration of it but the, the glimpses of of pleasure that you have mixed in with the, you know, hours of turmoil and toiling away. So yeah, it, it's certainly a later endeavor and something that didn't come easy and still doesn't come easy today. Um, but uh, I really enjoy that aspect of learning and being, um, you know, finding new solutions to it. And I guess the same applies to business side of, of healthcare that we that I'm now on, on a journey of and and really enjoying too. So that side of medicine really Came about from you know finishing school with a science background, um, looking for opportunities to help others. Um, I had parents that were you know pushing the the, the high employment prospects and certainly a, a stable, if not more comfortable income that comes with medicine. But um, initially, it was the science background and a sister who'd started it and seen the joy that she'd had from from being in the clinic and and, and hospitals.
0: Got you and. ENT in particular, that branch of medicine, was there a particular interest area that drew you there or anything on the personal front that drew you into ENT?
1: I had a very good experience as a a junior doctor. And then I took three years out of of medicine to do a PhD in cochlear implants. It was across basic science and medical devices. Um, Cochlear implants are devices that are implanted towards the inner ear to help people hear better. And I really enjoyed that aspect. And while I was doing that PhD, working part-time as an ear, nose and throat registrar, which is the ENT title that you're talking about there, certainly enjoyed the different aspect of new solutions, bringing that to, to finding new ways to explore the effectiveness of it. But it was certainly challenging in that not so much creating, but implementing those solutions into complex healthcare settings, especially where, you know, the user of those implants are not necessarily the payer of the solution, um, and and that's probably where, you know, that drew me from the PhD towards the business side of, of healthcare, and that's where I've been ever since for the last uh, five years or so.
0: Got you. And tell me, I mean, you're, you're touching on there, the entrepreneurship and, you know, swapping over into the, to the business and the commercial world. How do did you, or what was the drive to set up the business that was acquired after, I think it was only two years, tell me where I'm wrong, but connecting learner drivers with instructors. Where did that fit in?
1: Yeah, so that was towards my, that was the end of my PhD. I did found a learner driver startup, connecting those drivers with instructors. And look, it was more around an, an opportunity I saw in the market. I had a, a, a girlfriend at the time who was struggling to get her license I thought at the time there must be a better way to connect people like her with driving instructors. I pitched to Blue Chili, uh, which is a, a fund and co-developer with entrepreneurs that helps them find market fit, build out a minimum viable product, um, helps them raise capital. And through that program, I was able to, after a number of iterations and pivots, um, change the company to really be more of a marketing funnel for Driving instructors to get more um, learner drivers on board, and um, that sold that to a, a local company, where which bought me some time to to have some coffees on a different bill, and and then eventually join Cancer Aid between.
0: <laughs> Got you. Well done. I mean, no no mean feat by it. What was the? How old were you when you did that?
1: Ah, uh, it was maybe three or four years ago now. So giving my age away here, but thirty two probably at the time. Thirty one at the time.
0: Got it. So you've got a PhD. You've worked as a as an ear, nose, throat specialist. You've created and and sold a uh, a tech business all by the age of thirty. No mean feat. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine there's. Uh, I imagine that um, some serious uh, sleepless nights and, wow. um, and a lot of hard work and toiling has gone
1: into that. Right. I wish it was that illustrious. Um, <laughs> this is just a small piece, but. Um, Ear, nose, and throat specialist. I've I've never actually trained as an ear, nose, and throat specialist. I've done un, unaccredited work, and so any nose and throat specialist listening to the podcast may, you know,
0: register. Well, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, may take offence to that, but yeah, I never practiced as a specialist, and then um, you know the yeah yeah. I'll leave it at that anyway.
0: Got it. Well, you're in, you're in a safe space here. We've got you um, okay. still in high regard, regardless. So those specialists can get away, can uh, keep it to themselves. But, uh, but let's um, go into the study that's uh, super interesting and what's uh, made me want to reach out and have you chat with us. I mean, as, as exercise physiologists, you know, we're working a lot with people in the cancer recovery space. Um, and so we keep an eye on new research coming out and, and in particular, we're in the call it the, the occupational rehab industry and we're, we're working to help people get back uh, into work, into life, into their ADLs, et cetera, trying to restore you know, the quality of life uh, via exercise is the, way that, is the way that we go about it. Um, and so looking at the developments and you know studies that have come out in that space are always super interesting. And so uh, seeing the study that you were the lead author on in which Cancer Aid uh, worked with AIA, and looked at the retrospective uh, analysis of, of the cancer aid program and its effect on, on the cancer journey, I guess, that the participants went through. So I'd love you to, to break down, I guess, what was the rationale from through your eyes, the rationale behind the study, and I guess
1: uh, the key takeaways from it? Cool. Start with the rationale, Brad. And around half of cancer diagnoses today occurs in people of working age, and that's between 20 and 64 years of age. We can typically consider it a disease of the elderly, but in fact, really, it is a lot more represented than a lot of us think. Um, And the likelihood of the cancer survivorship occurring in the workforce is actually increasing um, as we improve our uh, detection of cancers as well. So for cancer survivors, returning to work really does have a number of benefits across their health, their quality of life, their sense of normality, their self-respect. And at the same time, we know that cancer can cause considerable financial burden to these people. And so it really does support their earnings and increase their, their safety net against health expenditures. So with that in mind, we've partnered with AIA really to support these people in a time of need, to look at those challenges that they may face that Is preventing them from getting back to work and you know these are things like the type of cancer the type of work that they do and the level of support and the flexibility they have around their work and then to develop a program and a support program that improves that outcome ideally of their return to work so we had around two years of data from cancer aid participants as well as non-participants of of, um, AIA, um, where we matched the two groups with around 23 different variables. These include things like the age of the individual, the type of cancer, the type of insurance they have, the type of occupation that they have, um, and then compared their rate of return to work. Um, So the major findings from the study uh, was that at the 18th month mark, 30% of cancer participants were returning to work compared to 18% of of those non-cancer participants. It was a Relative improvement of around 73% and a really exciting result for, for both of us, uh, cancer aid and AIA. Returning to work is certainly good for patients, as I said at the start there, around their sense of normality, their self-respect, their hip pocket. Um, but for AIA, it also means they're closing those cancer claims earlier, which is you know a great outcome for their bottom line too.
0: Yeah, awesome. I mean, it's fantastic, the results and the impact that the program can have. For, for those that don't know the format, I guess, of of cancer aid, maybe could you break down, I guess, even for, uh, obviously this is what, this is the intervention that the participant, uh, or the intervention group experienced, um, for those in particular in, that were in the study and for all of those who do participate in cancer AIDS programs separate to the study, what, what is cancer aid and what does somebody experience who goes into the cancer aid program or utilizes cancer AIDS, uh, software? What, what do they experience?
1: That's a good question. So we were, we were founded by clinicians in 2015, including uh, Dr. Raghav Murali Ganesh, uh, who's the CEO of the company today. Uh, company was really based on a, a relatively simple observation. Patients that can self-manage their disease, that can make positive changes in their health, these patients typically encounter fewer symptoms and side effects. Um, they have fewer treatment discontinuations and they use less of the health system um, with better outcomes the unfortunate part is that in busy healthcare systems today most of our patients face uncertainty they feel overwhelmed isolated they feel disempowered about what they can and can't do to support themselves and so really that simple observation falls under the minority of patients that we see cancer aid has two broad objectives around that observation which is improving the the patient experience it can and it and it should be 10 times better And then the second piece is reducing the cost of cancer. We know that people that are supported to look after themselves, that are supported to make those positive changes, can reduce those costs. And, you know, that's where we've focused um, the company today. So what we offer today is support programs that combine highly engaging technology, including the the Cancer Aid app, with human health coaching. Uh, We partner with life insurers as well as employers like Aon, Minter Ellison, Lease. Um, and government agencies like Home Affairs, Defence, and and through these organisations, we're supporting members and, and employees um, that are diagnosed with cancer, that are in a caregiving capacity, or at a higher risk of cancer. The study we recently conducted with AIA was with um, was supporting uh, members that are diagnosed with cancer, um, and that was via our program called the Cancer Aid Coach Program. It's based on lifestyle and psychological interventions that are that are well established and consistent with. Um, Australian and American um, oncology guidelines. So these include things like diet and exercises. I'm sure many, many people listening today will know um, for survivors in cancer, but also peer support and other interventions that are backed by evidence from large randomized trials to improve patient outcomes. So a really good example that came out from a study um, around four years ago now was around digital symptom tracking and um, how that both improves outcomes, enables people to have a better understanding of their disease and their trajectory, have better conversations with their doctors, um, which ultimately is using less of the healthcare system, proactive way out rather than a reactive.
0: Yeah, I mean, that that whole digital side, I mean, just in, in terms of some of the stuff that we're doing within our business as, as exercise physiologists, we're using... Um, Different activity trackers and um, heart variability monitors and things like that, and when people are collecting that data, and and you can empower the conversations that they can have with their treaters, with their clinicians, and and so. Prior to that, it's it's been a conversation of, you know, the the clinician asking the patient, how, how have you been feeling? How have you been going? And it's all very much their best recollection. And we know that that can get skewed throughout their recovery journey, how they're perceiving they're going can, can be very different on a day-to-day basis. And I mean, especially in the mental health cohort where we work as well. So data, you know, if they can share the data and say, here's how I've been going, here is my last three months worth of data, you know, in, in whatever kind of, capacity it just empowers that that conversation then ultimately the decision maker uh, the the decision that the treater is able to then come to or what what they're able to propose going forward may be better informed because of the data that they've got do you find that with does that come into the way you think about digital uh, the the digital space i guess or, or or data collection empowering healthcare going forward
1: Yes, certainly, Brad. And, and we're seeing, for example, greater uptake of of our app. We've certainly seen a lot more use around disease treatment and the symptoms that people are tracking since COVID nineteen, um, in particular. Um, and, and you know, we're beneficiaries of those those tailwinds of people being more adoptive of these types of solutions. Mm-hmm we're seeing very good utilization and engagement of the program. And and that is often one of the challenges of when um, you're not directly, you know, the end user is different to the person that pays for the solution and and certainly a challenge of healthcare. Um, But, you know, we've, we've been very successful in supporting people to adopt our solution and then to continue using it over the 12 weeks of our program. And so, you know, that that's, one of the reasons why our partnerships have have gone so well. And currently today we're in Australia, New Zealand, um, shortly Singapore, but the US is the next market that we're um, moving towards with our partnerships.
0: Awesome. And now I I wanted to just kind of just sit on this point just for one second, because I I remember just earlier when you were explaining the program, you mentioned in there the human element that's still included as well. So we're, you know, in now this, you I guess on some hands you could say the post-COVID world, or the living with COVID world. And, uh, but there's been this big shift towards telehealth and digital, etc. And it therefore, then raises conversations around what's better. Is there a difference? Is face-to-face better than telehealth? And blah blah blah. And I note that you you mentioned, you know, we it's it's a digital ecosystem, but we still have that that human element there. And where you have the you know a real person calling during that 12-week program. There's a real person that calls, um, and can you shed any light on what that health coach chats about in those, I guess, those, those sessions that they have, and why is that human element
1: important? Still, Brad, you, you make a very good point. Um, despite all the uh, product and development time that we spend, it's it's really hard to emulate the empathic experience we want our patients to 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 have uh, when they encounter Cancer Aid, and so. So CancerAid has an app that's available. We have 40,000 or so users globally. However, we know that when we tie in the use of the app with a a health coach, the experience increases the use of the app by around 13 times and extends the duration of that um, at least 10 times as well. CancerAid today offers a 12-week program. We have around 100 digital touch points across that 12-week program tied in with three phone calls with a human health coach these health coaches are typically of medical allied often with a science background also with um, healthcare experience we tie in both um, for two purposeful reasons the digital aspect is for the scalability and consistency of the program so People can use the app in their own time. They can uh, read the modules when um, when it's appropriate for them. And we actually see a lot of after hours use of the app and we see a lot of use of the app outside of the 12-week program. But at the same time, we also tie in the experience with a human health coach to then personalise aspects of that and to amplify the the digital pieces for them. And an example of that conversation with with a health coach is, and I wish I'd known this in medical school as well, um, but an example of that conversation is rather than just providing information, it's checking in with um, with a participant of how that information is received, what were their take-homes, how can we move to the next stage of setting goals um, around that information, and how can we help you achieve those goals, and how can we then check in to make sure you're achieving those goals. It's really hard to do digitally alone, um, and we have as a company have tried various aspects of that and have not seen anywhere near the same results as the, the dual tie-in, um, which is why we continue to do so today. And, you know, one of the things that our patients that really do love is having that empathic aspect of a health coach um, in addition to, you know, the app that they can use anytime they like.
0: Love it. Awesome. So you mentioned the results that, that the intervention caused if, if that's the word for it, the, the results that were provided, the benefits that were provided, maybe that's a better way of saying it. And he said that the return to work rates were 30% in the intervention group, 17% in the control group. It, was there a commonality in terms of at what stage through the I guess the cancer journey the participants were when they received the 12 weeks? Was that limited in any way? I.e. it was, you know, they were all between six and 12 months, you know, from cancer diagnosis or from or was it from uh, you know, a different, was there a different marker instead of diagnosis, maybe when they were deemed to be in remission or cancer free? Or what, what was the, I guess, the marker of, okay, this is from here to here. These, these are the kind of boundaries on this is where somebody received the 12-week program.
1: So it was around three, at the three-month mark, to- participants would commence the Cancer Aid Coach Program three months after a diagnosis. Um, for the analysis in particular, we only looked at the top 10 most common cancer types. And the program on top of that would typically take another 12 weeks after that. So around six months from the start to the completion of the program.
0: Got it. Makes sense. That with the being, I mean, it sounds up quite early in the piece that they're getting the, the 12-week intervention. Was there uh, some of the participants still going through any active chemo treatment or, or radio treatment, or were there any differences in regards to people still being in active treatment versus uh, having finished that? Was there was, was anybody still receiving active treatment during it?
1: We don't actually have that result from AIA's data set. It was a de-identified data set that we shared. Sure. However, anecdotally, I can tell you that many were still in active treatment. It was across a mix of surgery radiotherapy, chemotherapy, immunotherapy.
0: Got it. Do you think there? I mean, when we do our exercise physiology intervention, we're always banging the drum of early is always better, early is better. Like as soon as you can get them out and get them exercising, get them moving again. And we know, uh, again, just, yeah, and I mean, if we go in the musculoskeletal world, go back 20 years and someone say post-hip replacement, it was unbelievable if somebody said, we, we're going to get you out of the bed and start walking the next day after getting your hip replaced. And now that's, that's what's being pushed is get them moving as soon as possible within boundaries, within you know safe limits, et cetera. But it's always earlier is better. And I wonder in the cancer recovery journey, do you think that still rings true? Is earlier always better or is there an optimal time? Do you think, and I wonder, does any data show or just anecdotally, do you think there is a, an optimal time to say, recommend somebody participate in a program such as Cancer Aid?
1: so we purposely designed the program brad so that it is applicable whether it's someone that's newly diagnosed or several months or, or even a years later um, after a diagnosis so there's parts there it's general enough so that it's applicable to most and then specific enough that there's take homes and design of the program so that um, someone can take something from it ultimately we think the best outcomes are for those that are earlier in their diagnosis, and the reason being that one of the core modules is symptom tracking and that if people have a good handle of their symptoms, understand the disease trajectory, they're then having better conversations with their clinical team, and that gets best results when they're you know, actively going through treatment. Not to say, though, that it's those sort of tips are not appropriate for someone that's further, further uh, away from their diagnosis.
0: So there was another point in the study that um, came up about uh, In in the occupational rehab world, there's always a a want to get people back to work, you know, sooner rather than later, obviously, as as quick as possible, obviously, in the safest way. And we know work's good for us. Um, The health benefits of of work are very clear and, you know, very prominent in the research. Uh, And so getting people back to work faster is always better if they're safe in doing so. And I think if I've got it right, there was a point in the study that... um, there was this, So the first 15% of people to return to work for the intervention was 70.6 weeks compared to 87 weeks for the control group. But I think you've got in there that it, this wasn't statistically significant. And I just wondered that at face value, 17 weeks seems like a pretty solid difference. But is there something in the data that points to it not being statistically significant?
1: Yeah, it, it is. And it's really probably comes down to the number of people that are in those two groups at that stage. And at that point, it's probably underpowered as a as a statistical term to find any statistical difference. There is a trend. And but if you look at the confidence intervals, they're quite wide at that time point. So that's why that it doesn't reach a 0.05 or 95%, you know, significance there.
0: I see. Makes sense. Uh, essentially, the, the yeah the size of size of the group's not lending to it being reliable enough. I guess as a data point, that makes sense. Yeah. Only other thing I was going to go into was um, the uh, remote versus hospital patient care. So you know obviously huge cost savings of of telehealth versus face to face hospital programs. Do you is the ultimate goal for for Cancer Aid to I guess reduce the dependence on people staying within care facilities there's the the chris o'brien you know facility in sydney linked to rpa is cancer aid ultimately trying to empower people individually and keep them out of uh, facilities such as that and and helping them to manage their care ongoing and, and powered by telehealth along the way is that is that ultimately what cancer aid wants to do
1: Yeah, you're right there, Brad. Our goal is to both improve that patient experience and to reduce the cost of cancer. And many of those are related to inpatient stays. Um, And so from a product perspective, we're certainly looking at extending the duration, intensity of the support of our programs um, with an eye towards what those costs are. Um, And some of those initiatives we're looking at are, you know, extending those digital interactions, um, incorporating behaviour change nudges driven by AI, AI, Um, We're looking at adding things like podcasts and and extending community engagement in our programs. And and finally, we do have a a module that's on mindfulness today. We're looking at how we can build in that psychosocial resilience and and social supports for people um, in their time of need in a proactive way, as opposed to very much a reactive model that we see in, in, in healthcare today.
0: Awesome. Uh, You mentioned at the start that the U.S. seems to be the next frontier for for cancer aid. Can you shed any light on what the plans are for the U.S. market?
1: Yeah, certainly. So we're focusing on self-insured employers um that are large employers supporting their employees with both health insurance other benefits that that are associated with that with that health insurance um and we're also focusing on insurers so in the US there's similar to Australia there's there's health insurers that are called payers and life insurers also we've very good evidence for the employer market based on this study that we're improving that productivity. And for life insurers, we're also reducing those costs um, that are arising from, from their cancer cases. So it's an exciting opportunity for us. We've got several uh, of our current partners that are extending their reach towards the US um, with, their, with their US companies there. Um, so that'll, that'll be occurring over the next few months.
0: Awesome. And then maybe uh, you'll end up being California-based and you'll be able to test out whether the California beaches um, compare to the Sutherland Shire.
1: That's right. I'll have to be getting a thicker wetsuit. But yeah, absolutely. Very exciting time.
0: <laughs> awesome. Thank you, mate. I really appreciate it. I appreciate you taking the time to, um, to chat to us and break it down. And congrats again on the study. Well, I should ask actually before I, before I wrap up, because I should ask a more selfish question about exercise physiology. How much does exercise play a role within whether it's within the cancer aid program itself and i know there are you know videos and tips and tricks and things like that on there and and positive messages about getting people exercising who are going through a cancer recovery journey in in your eyes how important is, is of a role does exercise play for somebody going through cancer
1: Yeah, that's a good question, Brad. And I do have to caveat that I am certainly not any expert around exercise oncology, but um, from the literature and from what we are basing our programs on with ASCO and the Australian Oncology Guidelines, um, that there's very good evidence that moderate intensity exercise um, has good effects around mitigating cancer-related fatigue, anxiety, depression, lymphedema. And these are not trivial matters. These are often concerns of the majority, if not, you know, 100% of our patients that are coming through. Very good evidence that, that improves quality of life, physical function, sleep, bone health. So certainly something that we are strong advocates for. Um, but again, I think your, your, your group of listeners will know a lot more than what I would, but, you know, it's something that we certainly prioritize based on the existing literature.
0: Awesome. Thank you, John. I appreciate it. Thanks for taking the time. Good luck on the, the US expansion. Cool. And good luck developing a
1: surfing career too. <laughs> thanks, Brad. And thanks for having me along to <laughs> Specialized Health. I've really enjoyed it. So thanks again. Appreciate it, mate. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to the Building Function Podcast. If you have any questions for the team or would like to be a guest on the show, please go ahead and email Yolanda at specialisthealth.nz. If you'd like more information on specialised health and any information about how our awesome exercise physiologists can help you or your patients across Australia, check out specializedhealth.com.au. Or if you're in New Zealand, check out specializedhealth.nz. For information on Reva Wellness and their exercise physiology-based programs reimagining all things corporate health, such as manual handling programs, ergonomic assessments, and culture-building programs, jump on over to revawellness.com.au. And lastly, please do leave us a review wherever you listen to this podcast. We look forward to having you with us next time for our next episode of Building Function.